All right. Uh, today we are continuing on in Titus. We're going to be in verses 5 through uh, 16. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, that would be great. But also, since this is a uh, third Sunday, it means that this is a Sunday where we don't have Kids Connect, but instead have a uh, children's sermon before the main sermon. And for that today, I'm going to need a couple volunteers. I need just two random guys to come up here and stand so I can point at you and talk about you. Grown-ups. All right, Kyle and Marcus, these are two great examples. All right, kids. One of these guys is a liar. And everything he does is wrong. The other guy tells the truth. And everything that he does is good. But I don't know which one it is. And you don't know which one it is. And so my question is, how do we know? How do we find out whether Marcus or Kyle is the good guy or the bad guy? How do you think we find out? What do we do? Scan them. Scan them. <laughs> if only we had a scanner that could tell us. That's a good idea, Drew. What else? Ask them. Ask them. So, Marcus, are you the good guy? Sure. Kyle, are you the good guy? Sure. How do we know which one's lying? <laughs> Just Kyle. That's yeah. it. Okay, you guys can sit down. Thank you. Yeah. The way, if that were true, and one of these guys was good and one of these guys was bad, the way we would find out is by watching them, right? We would have to look and see what they do. If everything one of them does is bad, it wouldn't take very long for them to do something bad. And then we would know either Kyle or Marcus is the bad guy because what we do shows who we are, right? A good person will do good things. A bad person will do bad things. Jesus says that you'll know uh, the tree by its fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. He's going to describe two very different types of people. He's going to describe people that teach the true gospel, and they have actions that line up with it. And then he's going to describe people that teach a false gospel, and their actions do not line up with the truth. And so... When we don't have a scanner that can show us who is good and who is bad, what we have to do is watch people's actions because in what they do, they show us who they really are. You have a question? I don't have to make sure which one's which. How's that? That's right. Just ask them. That's a great idea. Just ask them some factual questions. Yeah. But that destroys the illustration. <laughs> Thank you, Noah. All right. Today, in our passage, we get two main things, like I said. We get uh, this description for the qualifications of elders, these uh, men who are going to lead the church and teach this gospel that has been entrusted to them. Last week, uh, when Jason taught, you saw in the passage how Paul passes on the gospel that he's been entrusted with 
to Titus. And then in today's passage, he's going to tell Titus to entrust that to other people. And so there's just this pattern where the gospel is passed on from generation to generation to generation. And all of us are here today because someone that has been entrusted with the gospel passed it on to us. They entrusted us with the gospel. And so he's going to outline these qualifications for these men who are going to lead the church and ensure that the gospel goes forth and that the church stays true to the gospel. And then in the second half of the passage, he's going to describe these false teachers who uh, don't have a character which lines up with the gospel, and they don't teach the truth. Instead, they teach something else. They teach uh, whatever they want. And the reason why this passage is important is because there is one true gospel. That's it. But there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of false gospels. And in order uh, for the true gospel to go forth, we must remain faithful to God's word, both in how we teach God's word and how we put those in place who will teach it. And so, even though this passage is about elders, um, don't think that, hey, this isn't important for me. Don't think I'll never be an elder, or maybe I will someday, but it doesn't really matter now. Because... One thing that we're going to see as we go through this passage, and one thing we saw when we went through the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, was that these qualifications aren't really that different from the normal qualifications for being a Christian. You know, there's been this really bad pattern in the church, not just in America, but everywhere of saying, you know, like, pastors need to be these, like, super Christians. You know, you've got normal Christians, and then you've got pastors and missionaries, and they are required to live at a level that's different from everyone else. But that's not what we see in Scripture. We see that we're all called to do ministry. We're all called to live out the implications of the gospel. And in these qualifications, there's not going to be anything that is, you know, so much more advanced than what we're normally called to as Christians. The only one that might be different would be just to be able to teach. Um, but I think that we would all acknowledge that as Christians, we need to be able to communicate the truth of the gospel to other people. Right? It's not as if as elders, Matt, Jason, Sean, Daniel, and I need to be husbands of one wife. But for everyone else, you can do as you please. We have to raise our children well, but if you're not an elder, you don't have to. Right? None of us would say that. These things apply to all of us. But elders are supposed to be people that... Uh, do these things with excellence so that they set an example for the rest of the body. So don't check out. Don't think these things don't apply to me. They do apply to you. So let's look at the passage this morning. I'm going to start reading in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, 
a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are subordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, this this letter that Paul, under the inspiration of your spirit, wrote to Titus to teach him how to give order to your church, to your body. God, and we thank you that you have preserved it down through the ages. We can study it together so that we can learn from you how you would have our church. God, we pray that you would send that same spirit this morning to help us to understand your word together. That we would leave here knowing not only more about how you want the church structured, but that we would leave knowing more about the gospel that the church has been entrusted with sharing to the world. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, that it's, it's only because of who you are and what you've done for us that any of this matters. We thank you that you freed us from our sin and free us to live a different kind of life that can actually live up to the qualifications you have for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the main point for us this morning in this passage that we're going to see as we work through it is that good leaders will have sound doctrine that's demonstrated in good deeds and bad leaders won't. Good leaders will have sound doctrine that's demonstrated in good deeds and bad leaders won't. It's pretty simple, but that's what this passage is about. It's about who those that lead the church will be and who those that promote false gospels will be. So there's two sections. The first half, as we read, is about uh, these elders and who they're supposed to be. And the second half is all about this false teaching that has crept into the church in Crete. Um, So the first thing we saw in this passage is in verse 5 where Paul tells Titus this is why he left him behind. Paul had a habit of traveling around with a group of people. And then when you know problems or needs came up in the church, he would send one of those guys to a specific location to handle a specific problem. 
And so Paul tells Titus, I left you behind so that you would do these things, so that you would put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. It's important for us to understand what an elder is. A lot of us were here when we covered 1 Timothy 3 over the summer, but a lot of us won't. Weren't. And so when we did that, we looked at three specific passages. We looked at this passage that we're going to look at today. We looked at 1 Timothy 3. We looked at a passage in Acts, and we looked at a passage in 1 Peter. We're not going to go through all of those again this morning. If you want to hear what we said about that, you're welcome to go online and listen to it. Uh, the highlights were two things. The first was that there was this uh, pattern where words for church leaders were used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. So we see the word for uh, pastor, we see the word for shepherd, we see the word for elder, we see the word for overseer. These aren't four different positions. These are all the same position. Paul uses them in the same way. He's going to do that in this passage as we read. He talks about elders, and then in verse 7, he calls them overseers. This is the same position. So, as a church... We have one set of leaders. They are pastors, they are elders, they are overseers, they are shepherds. It's all the same. And so as a church, uh, we won't ever have, you know, people that are pastors who aren't elders. Because that's nonsense in the New Testament. It doesn't exist. If someone is a pastor, they're an elder. If someone is a pastor, they're an overseer. These things are all used on the same level. The second thing that we saw when we went through all those passages was that the pattern was for multiple elders in a church. So Paul tells Titus, I left you behind so that you would appoint elders, more than one, in every town. Now it's possible that what Paul is telling Titus here is that he's you know, supposed to appoint like five elders for five towns. But in Acts 20.17, he says, uh, he, he calls the elders of the church of Ephesus out to meet with him. And there it's plural again. So there's multiple elders in one church in Ephesus that come out to meet with Paul. That's why we as a church, we don't have just one pastor. We have five pastors. And we all have the same authority. I just get paid for it. And they don't, uh, which is wonderful for me. I'm very thankful. But we all share authority. We make decisions together. And uh, it is wonderful that God ordained it to be this way. Sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes one of us wants to make a decision and the other ones aren't ready. Sometimes one of us wants to wait on a decision and the other ones are ready. Um, but this church right here would be so much worse off if just one of us was in charge. If just I was in charge, I would make all kinds of stupid, rash decisions. We would have no money, uh, and I don't know, lots of other things. But God, in his wisdom, knows that we need a community to lead a community. And so that's what we have. Um, And so Paul here is telling Timothy to do that. 
to put these men in charge of the church. Not just one, but a group, a plurality who will lead the body well. And as such, as they have this responsibility, he goes through these qualifications. Don't just put anyone in these positions, put specific people. And so he says, if anyone is above reproach, He's going to flesh out in the rest of these qualifications what it means to be above reproach. But essentially what he's saying is that to be above reproach means that you have the kind of character or life that makes it very difficult for people to attack you. Right? We can't control what people say about us. People can say whatever they want. But we should, as Christians and especially as elders, strive to have the kind of life that if someone says something that's a lie about us, other people know that's a lie. Because they know us well enough, they know our character well enough to know that's not the kind of thing that that person would do. Right? If someone calls me on the phone and says, this week I saw Matt Campbell punch an old lady in the face. I would say, I need to call Matt and find out whether this is true. Said not really. I would know Matt doesn't punch old ladies. That's not the kind of character that he has. And if he did, there were probably circumstances that led to him being in the right when he did it. <laughs> like he was, you know, protecting someone from getting killed or something. We're to have the kind of character that makes it evident to everyone the kind of life we have. That's what it means to be above reproach. And he's going to walk through kind of specifics of how we are to be above reproach. The first thing he says is the husband of one wife. This phrase is, is literally a one-woman man. That's who elders are supposed to be. That's who any Christian husband is supposed to be. They're supposed to be someone who is faithful to their wife. And Before we talk specifically about what it means, I want to talk about what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that elders cannot be single. It doesn't mean that all elders have to be married. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, if you're widowed, that you're disqualified. It doesn't mean that if you're divorced, you're disqualified. And I know that that probably is different for a lot of us who grew up in a Baptist church. You know, in my church when I grew up and what I believed for a very long portion of my life was what my church bylaw said, which said you cannot be a deacon or you cannot be an elder if you've been divorced because that's what the Bible says. The problem with that is that that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say anything here about divorce. It talks about how this elder, this pastor, is supposed to be a one-woman man. The reason why I don't think that's what it means is because of one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 3.8, um, talking about deacons. Let me make sure I got that reference right. Yes, 1 Timothy 3.8. Paul says the deacons must not be addicted to much wine. And so the question then that I have when I read that passage is, well, then if we have a person in our church who is an alcoholic, is it okay for them to be a deacon? Not an alcoholic who drinks all the time. An alcoholic who's been sober for 30 years. 
He's serving in the church. He's doing the work of a deacon. And our body says, hey, we want to make this guy a deacon. We say, sorry, technically, he's addicted to wine. He's disqualified. I don't think that's what we would say. We would say, this guy's been sober for 30 years. Yeah, physiologically, he's addicted to it, but he's not enslaved to it. He has self-control. He has all the marks of a deacon. So let's call him what he is. In the same way, there are so many possible scenarios about how someone might become divorced that it would be insane for us to lay down a statement in our bylaws enforcing something that Scripture doesn't teach. Now, if we had someone who you know, walked out on his family and was unrepentant about it, absolutely that person would be disqualified. But, you know, there are pastors, there, there's a pastor in this city who, when he was a non-Christian, got married and then later got divorced. I don't think he's disqualified from being a pastor because of that. I think that he's perfectly qualified to be a pastor because of who he is not because of who he was. And so, what I'm saying is that this statement does not mean that if you've been divorced, you're automatically disqualified. It means you might be, but we're going to evaluate your life now and not put a statement in our bylaws rejecting you forever. Because it's just dumb and ungracious and anti-gospel. What it does mean, and I've kind of hinted at this along the way, is that we're faithful husbands to our wives all the time. She has our heart. We cherish and treasure her. means there's no room for any kind of unfidelity, infidelity. You know, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whatever. Pornography, you know, online relationships, flirting at the office, any of those things is us not doing this. We're called to be faithful all the time. We're called to be one woman men. Next, Paul talks about the kind of fathers that elders are supposed to be. Again, I don't think this rules out people that don't have kids. But if they do, they need to be this kind of father. He says, and his children are believers or faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The question here is, does that mean people can't be elders if they don't have kids who believe? And the answer is, I hope not because I think most of us have kids who don't believe because they're little. All right, if that's what this means, if, that, if this means that you can't be an elder if your kids haven't experienced conversion, is there some sort of grace period? Right, do you have like five minutes after they come out to like get them the gospel, and then if they don't believe, you're out. Sorry, Matt, you tried your best. They believed at seven minutes. Not soon enough. Or five months, you know, five years. What's, what's the cutoff? 
I don't think that there is a cutoff. I think that Paul is saying that if someone who is an elder does have kids who don't believe the gospel, it should raise serious concerns for us about their qualifications, but that it doesn't automatically disqualify them. The reason why I think that is because of what we saw in First Timothy. This is what he says there. He says, He must, the elder, must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Notice that in First Timothy, there's absolutely no mention of the fact that his children must be believers. So, either Paul is requiring one thing for elders in Crete and another thing for elders in Ephesus, which I don't think he's doing, or he's saying the same thing in different ways. He's saying that what matters is that fathers have the kind of character that they manage their household well. They raise their kids well. They raise their kids in the faith and not outside the faith. I think what's hugely important in the First Timothy passage is how he says they keep their, their children submissive. He says, um, do we have this verse up here? Yeah, there we go. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. What he's saying here, I think that this is especially important for dads, but it's also important for moms. He's saying that obedience is not the goal of parenting. Keeping your kids submissive is not the goal of parenting. Keeping them submissive with all dignity is the goal of parenting. The difference is, you can force your kids to obey. Either with threats, or bribery, or just meanness. You can make your kids obey. And you can raise obedient, spiritually dead kids. And it would be easier than raising obedient, spiritually alive kids. Here, he's saying that we do it in a way that gives them dignity. We recognize that our kids are created in God's image just like us. And we parent them, we father them, we encourage them to obey in such a way that causes that image of God in them to flourish instead of crushes it. And I think we know those moments when we're parenting and we cause our kids to obey but not in a way that causes them to flourish in their obedience. That's the kind of fathers these elders should be. Not those who just have obedient kids, but those who have obedient kids who are happy, who love their dads, who love their moms, who are flourishing as obedient kids instead of being crushed into it. Because... That's our job. It's to create little disciples who model the gospel that they've seen us model at home. It's not just about avoiding insubordination or avoiding debauchery. It's about them living out the gospel that's greater than them and greater than us. And the reason why this matters is because if you can't lead your own family, you can't lead a family of families. Next, 
he repeats again that these overseers must be above reproach because this idea is hugely important to Paul. They're God's stewards. A steward is somebody that manages something that doesn't belong to them. That's what elders do. They lead his body, his church, not our church, not our body. And they must do it in a way that's above reproach. He says they must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Instead, they should be patient and humble. Really, these things are important for any leadership position. As a leader, there are going to be times where you are irritated and frustrated and tired and burnt out, and someone is going to come to you, and they're going to say something that's irritating, that's frustrating, that pushes you towards the brink of lashing out at everyone. And as any leader, you can't do that. But especially as a leader of God's body, we're called to lead in such a way that shows the gospel and the grace and mercy and love of God, even as we're talking about it to other people. We can't do that if we're arrogant and quick-tempered. Next, he says, they can't be a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Here, right, all of us are imperfect. All of us will sin. All of us will continue to fail throughout the course of our life. That's the reality of living in a fallen world. But these particular things aren't individual occasions of sin. They're, they're patterns. It's continually giving in to sin. It's continually allowing yourself to be enslaved by it. An elder cannot be those things. And really, a Christian can't either. We must say no to sin, and especially those which, which enslave us in our patterns of rebellion against God. In verse 8, he moves to talk about what we should be instead. Should be hospitable. We talked about this when we went through the First Timothy passage. But it's hugely important for us to understand here that this is on the guys. It's not on the girls. It's not on the women. It's not on the wife. The, the elder, the pastor, must be hospitable. Hospitality doesn't mean saying, Hey, Jen, I want to have some people over. So make dinner, clean the house, take care of the kids. You know, you set all that up. I'm hospitable because I said, let's have them over. She's hospitable because she does all the work. That's not hospitality. That's being a bad husband. And hospitality isn't just limited to a meal or food. It's opening your life to other people. You can be hospitable in so many different areas. And honestly, this is something that I was pretty significantly convicted of when we were in India because they are so freaking hospitable. There was this night, this day, where we went and visited a lot of Dinesh's house churches and there was so much tea that was forced on us. Like we would go to this house, they were like, we just, we just want you to come and, and pray uh, for us at our home. That's it. Be really quick. We go. As soon as we get there, the wife is like dragging out like snacks and tea and is like, you must drink this, you must drink this. We go to the next house, more tea. Go to the next house, more tea. Go to the next house, more tea. I was like, I cannot take any more tea. I'm not going to sleep tonight. Uh, 
but it's because they want to be hospitable. Because they want to serve the people that come in their home and show them love. And uh, personally, that's an area I want to grow. I think culturally, it's an area we need to grow. Um, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. These are all things that are simply implications of the gospel. Right? We can't just preach the gospel. We can't just tell people what it's about. We need to show them through our life. Finally, in verse 9, it says, You must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we hold firm to the word, and there's two things that we do when we do that. Two effects of holding firm to the word. The first is to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. If you can't tell people what you believe, you don't believe it. Having faith, having belief is, is intellectual. It's also emotional and volitional, which means, uh, sorry, still a little jet lagged. <laughs> it means your, your actions are determined by what you believe. But it is intellectual too. You have to know what you believe in order to believe it. And if you can't tell someone what you believe, then you don't know it. And so part of holding firm to the word is the ability to explain it to someone else. And with that, if you can't explain what you believe to someone else, then you can't really do what you're called to do as a Christian. Right? We're called to share the gospel. If you don't know the gospel well enough to share it with someone else, you're not being a Christian. I don't know, feigning Christianity. But being a Christian is both believing it and sharing the message with others. The second product of holding firm to the word is the ability to rebuke those who contradict it. Right? When we hear false gospels, we should first of all be able to recognize that they're false gospels. And then we should have the kind of character that can correct that false gospel with truth and in a way that represents the truth. We don't just say harsh words of correction. We correct it with love, speaking the truth in love. That's what we're called to do. And he's going to explain why this matters. Why, why, why do elders need to have this kind of character? Why do they need to hold firm to the word? Why do they need to know what they believe? Why do they need to be able to con- contradict those that say something else? And he tells us in verse 10, For there are many, there are lots, who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So Paul here is is telling us, Titus already knows what's going on because he's there. He's telling us some of what is going on in Crete. He left him behind to appoint elders because there's this problem. There are these false teachers who have come into the church and they're teaching false doctrine. He says they're insubordinate. They don't respect the authority of either God's word or the leaders in the church. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. This is especially those of the circumcision party. These are kind of Jewish Christians or maybe Christians who had come into the church and said, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to believe in him and keep the law. That's why they're 
called the circumcision party because they were telling all the Greek dudes that they needed to go get circumcised. They wanted to be Christians. They wanted to follow Jesus. They needed to do that and other things. This is legalism. It's the beginning of legalism in the church right here. Saying that they're lying. They must be silenced, which is harsh. Don't allow them to speak in the church because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. We need to take a stand against false teaching. Now, I think it was a few months ago, Matt talked uh, in one of the Timothys, and he said that there, there's a certain amount of false teaching that we want to have in the church. And he explained that, you know, as you have new believers coming to the church, they're going to say things that they think they understand about the word, but that are false. Like, that's okay. And we want an environment in which those kinds of things happen. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about people who know that what they're saying is false and are saying it anyway. They're deceivers. They're not misled. They're not confused. They're not misunderstanding. They understand, and they're speaking false things. Then he's going to use themselves against them. He quotes this this poet. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is because Paul understands something fundamental about humanity. right? I can say something bad about myself. But if you say something bad about me, that bothers me. Right? I can say something bad about my family. But if you say something bad about my family, it's going to bother me. I can say something bad about, you know, America. And if someone who's not American said something bad about America, I mean, it probably wouldn't bother me anyway. But some people it will really bother. Depending on what they said, it would bother me. And so here, instead of Paul saying something mean and kind of demeaning towards Cretans, he quotes a Cretan to say, this is who you people are. There's kind of this proverbial understanding of the fact that people from Crete weren't great people. This is what he's pointing out by quoting. It's like, even, even you yourself say this about yourself. Paul simply agrees with it. He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Again, with the the kind of harshness. They must be silenced, rebuke them sharply. But notice the end of this verse. Rebuke them sharply that, or so that, or the purpose is that they may be sound in the faith. This is vitally important. When we hear false teaching, when we see false teachers, we should confront them, but not... So we feel better about ourselves. Not so that other people see that they're wrong. Not so that we can get a whole bunch of likes on Facebook. Not so that we can make ourselves feel smart in a comment thread. We correct, we rebuke false teaching sharply that they, that's the false teachers, may be sound in the faith. The purpose for rebuke, the purpose for correction, the purpose for knowing what we believe and correcting those who don't believe it is so that they will believe it. It's redemptive. And anytime we forget that, we're doing what they do. 
and not what we're called to do. The purpose of correction is always restoring them in the faith. And that's why we take the stand that we do. That's why we rebuke them sharply. Because this matters. Instead, these people devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, these man-made teachings about the law. And then Paul gives us this kind of cryptic phrase. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. The pure, all things are pure, but the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. I think in order to understand this, we need to recognize that this word here for pure, it's not talking about like morally pure, right? Because none of us are morally pure. It's talking about uh, kind of a ceremonial cleansing that took place in Jewish culture. So, like to those who have been cleaned. All things are clean. But to the defiled and unbelieving, to those who are not clean, nothing is clean. And what Paul's primarily talking about here is one of the things that these Jewish false teachers were saying. That was, they were saying that to be a Christian, you had to keep you know, the religious law. You had to eat certain foods and not eat certain foods. If you ate unclean foods, you became unclean yourself. But Paul's saying that's not the case. To those who have been made clean, everything is clean. If you want to eat bacon, eat bacon. It's no longer unclean for you anymore. And I'm told there were some donuts out in the lobby that actually had bacon on them this morning. So you can eat those if you want. Because to those who have been made clean, all things are clean. But to those who haven't, it doesn't matter what they eat. Eating food doesn't make you clean. Eating other kinds of food doesn't make you unclean. There's one thing that makes you clean. And that's Jesus' blood and righteousness, which is shed for us for the forgiveness for our sins. That's what makes us clean. That's it. And once we've been made clean by him, we cannot be made unclean by anything. This is exactly what we see in the Gospels, right? Jesus walks up to a leper and touches him. Up to that point in history, if anyone touched a leper, they became unclean. That's not what happens. right? What happens to the leper? Does he make Jesus unclean? No. What does Jesus do for him? He makes him clean. See, the kids know to answer the questions. (laughs) Jesus touches him, and instead of being unclean himself, he makes him clean. I don't think this is limited to food. We've talked before about this kind of threefold approach to the world and culture. There is, uh, we reject some things. Right, some things in this world will always be unclean. We can't make them clean. So like murder, pornography, those are always bad. They always will be bad. Slavery, always bad. 
That's not something that we can redeem or make clean. There's other stuff that we should always receive, like worship, God's word, the gospel. In every situation, those things are good. But the vast majority of stuff in culture in the world falls in a third category. It's stuff that's in between, like the internet. There are people out there that use the internet for horrible things. There are also people out there that use the internet for ministry, or technology, or food, or beverages. Those are things we need to redeem. Because we haven't been saved just so that we can be free from sin. We've been saved so that we can make the world better. So that we can bring God's kingdom in this world and do the work of ushering in his new creation. We take those things and we use them to advance the gospel and expand the kingdom. That's what I think Paul is talking about here. We go out and we make them pure by using them in a pure way. But to those who haven't been made pure, they're only going to use them for sin because their minds, their consciences are already defiled. He gives one last indictment of them in verse 16. He says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is what we talked about at the beginning. Right? Their works, what they do, it shows who they are. It's not the other way around. What we do doesn't determine who we are. What we do reveals who we are. And there are going to be those who believe a false gospel and have actions which line up with that. But because we believe the truth, because we know the truth, because we hold firm to the truth that's been entrusted to us, we should have the kind of actions which line up with the gospel, which live out its implications, both verbally as we share the truth with other people, as we speak it into situations which, you know, false gospels are just thrown into all the time. And also in our actions, as we demonstrate a love and mercy and grace that other people not simply don't demonstrate, but can't. Like there's that phrase that people throw around all the time of, you know, like preach, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And like, obviously that doesn't make any sense. We should preach the gospel with words. But we also proclaim the gospel when we live it out. That's not enough. But it's something that should accompany our preaching of it. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, Um, I would encourage you just to think about the fact that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a, it's a family meal. You know, we've talked about that a lot at BC, but it's not limited to this family. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not only celebrating our unity with one another, but we're celebrating our unity with Christians all over the planet. So right now, you know, there are tons of people who are hurting in Paris. There are tons of people who are starving in India. 
There are tons of people who are hurting all over the place. Some of them believe or some of them not. Don't let your celebration of the Lord's Supper today just be limited to you and what you've got going on in your life and how difficult it was to wake up and get ready and come to church this morning. Recognize that the world is so much bigger than you are and the gospel is so much bigger than you and your mess. It's big enough to deal with all of the mess. And that's what we're called to as Christians. We don't have good character and have good actions just for ourselves, just for those in closest proximity to us. But because the gospel message needs to go out and confront all of the false gospels all over the world. And so I would encourage you today, as you prepare your heart for the Lord's Supper, think about not only how your behavior needs to be confronted with the gospel, but how your mindset about your behavior needs to be confronted with it. Now, you would think about more than just yourself and think about everyone else who needs to hear the gospel. And then ask him to help you do that this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that You sent your son into this world. You sent him to an unclean place to make it new. And that he finished the work that you gave him. Jesus, we thank you that you died paying the penalty for our sins. You freed us not only from the uh, the penalty, but also from the power of them. You've redeemed us for something. To be about your work. To go forth and make disciples. To live out the realities of your kingdom in a world that's broken but being made new. Jesus, we pray now that as we prepare to celebrate your death together, that you would send your spirit to work in us to increase our awareness of your holiness and our sinfulness and to enlarge our understanding of the world around us and of the need for the gospel to go forth. God, help us to be faithful, not just for ourselves, not just for those closest to us, but for all those in your creation who have yet to be made clean. 